Welcome to Straight Thinking. On today's special episode, we're taking a look back at one of our favorite discussions. Now tune in with philosopher Ken Samples, Joe Aguirre, and Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, does philosophy matter? Is it dead? Some people seem to think so. Ken will address these questions and more on today's podcast, uh, one of two on this uh, topic, Why Philosophy Matters. Uh, Ken, your social media engagements often provide content for this podcast. Today is no exception. Maybe you can tell us how some of this came about. Yeah, that, you know, I was thinking about that the other day that I, I sometimes get annoyed that people argue with me on social media, but I, I turn them into articles. And, there you, uh, go. you know, we do we do straight thinking podcasts, so maybe I shouldn't uh, complain. Well, what I'd like to address is certainly uh, something we've touched upon before, uh, but there's a lot of talk these days uh, about uh, philosophy, about its demise. Uh, even even some of the leading scientists have uh, sounded off on philosophy. So I, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, philosophy, why I think it's important, how I think it interacts with uh, science and worldview. So uh, I'm pretty excited about this topic. I, I think people will hopefully get a lot out of it. Wonderful. Uh, Ken, I'm sure you're going to do so, but uh, for the sake of people who are new to this podcast or to what you do, uh, maybe you can tell us uh, what we're talking about when we, we use the word philosophy. Yeah, um, you know, philosophy is a, is a word that uh, actually appears in, in the New Testament. Uh, uh, sometimes in the New Testament, it's used uh, in the sense of be, beware of philosophy. But uh, the word philia and sophia, you put those together, philosophia, if you will, in Greek, it means a love of wisdom. I like to, to define philosophy this way. Um, it's, it's really uh, a careful examination of, of the most important questions of life. Uh, you know, who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? Does God exist? The problem of evil? I think philosophy is a, is a very important uh, discipline. And of course, all of my favorite Christian thinkers uh, in the Middle Ages, in the ancient world, they would all say that philosophy is a handmaid. It's a tool. Mm-hmm. And uh, Christians can use it in their uh, defense of, of theology, and they can use it to discover truth. Wonderful. All right. Well, tell us uh, some more about these uh, people and some of the quotes that you want to bring to our attention. Yeah, I, I want to begin by simply saying this, that I think science is a remarkable enterprise. In fact, uh, in my book, uh, Christianity Cross-Examined, I give a quote by Alistair McGrath, and McGrath is really an amazing person. I can't imagine having three doctoral degrees all from Oxford University. Uh, McGrath is a scientist, he's a theologian, he is an intellectual historian, and this is what he says, and I can't agree more. He says, quote, the natural sciences represent one of the greatest intellectual achievements of humanity. They have opened up new ways of thinking and have cleared the way for a deeper understanding of the way the world is. I, I completely concur. I'm amazed uh, with the enterprise of science. And, you know, Reasons to Believe talks a lot about uh, trying to reach STEM people, S-T-E-M-M science, technology, engineering, 
mathematics, medicine. You know, this morning when I got up, I took my medication and I was thinking to myself, uh, I am a recipient, I'm a beneficiary of science and technology, particularly medicine. And uh, I think Reasons to Believe is a very important apologetic organization because, you know, there are lots of people out there who have Christian roots, but they're STEM people, they're math science people, but they don't know how. How do I bring these two worlds together? How does Christianity relate to this? And so I, I give uh, Hugh and his wife, Kathy, a lot of kudos for starting an organization that would take on that kind of challenge. Now, having said that, uh, I, I'm sometimes surprised that uh, some leading scientists are very disparaging of philosophy. So I'd like to read a few quotes and then make some comments about it. Uh, the first one is uh, from Stephen Hawking. And, you know, many people, Dave, you know a lot better than I as a physicist. Stephen Hawking is uh, almost legendary. Yeah, amazing. People speak about him the way they would speak about Einstein or, or maybe even Isaac Newton. But um, when Stephen Hawking steps into the role of philosophy, he becomes an amateur, right? Well, here's a quotation from Stephen Hawking. It shouldn't be, by the way, because he has a degree in science and philosophy. Interesting. I, I, you know, I have a PhD. Isn't that a, a philosophical degree? It is, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, Joe, that that idea right there, having a doctorate of philosophy, tells you that philosophy in the history of Western civilization was was thought to be kind of foundational for education. So Dave, thank you for bringing that up. But here's a quote by Stephen Hawking. He's, he says this, he says, uh, why are we here? Where do we come from? Traditionally, these questions are for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. Philosophers have not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly in physics. Well, let me say just a couple things about that comment. Um, when you say philosophy is dead, you have engaged in philosophy. You're, you're, you're not making a scientific statement anymore. You're engaging in, you know, the study of ultimate reality uh, and, and things of that nature. And not everyone would agree with, um, with Hawking when he says that it hasn't kept up with modern physics. In fact, here's a, here's a very provocative quote from Robert Jastrow. Uh, another leading scientist, and from his book, God and Astronomers, Jastrow said this, in light of the emergence of Big Bang cosmology and issues like the, uh, the fine-tuning of the universe, this is what Jastrow says. He says, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak and he pulls himself over the final rock, and he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> now, I, I think Jastrow's powerful point is that the great scientific discoveries, the, the advancement in science in the 20th century of, you know, the universe seemingly has a beginning, 
the universe seems to, to be fine-tuned to allow for life. Well, these big scientific advancements, they fit pretty well with theistic philosophers who've been thinking about these ideas for a long time. So when you say philosophy is dead, you're, you're engaging in philosophy, or put it this way, you're using philosophy to beat up on philosophy. Mm -hmm. Not supposed to do that. Now, here's Lawrence Krauss. Uh, Professor Krauss is also a, a leading scholar, well-published, uh, very provocative, outspoken, both in his defense of science, but also his, his atheism. Uh, Krauss says this, quote, of course, philosophy is the field that hasn't progressed in 2,000 years. Hmm. Well, there, there I think we start to see a little bit of this turf warfare, right? That's why I began with uh, the quote from McGrath and my admiration for science. Uh, working at Reasons to Believe, working with Dave, working with Fuzz Rana, with Jeff Swearing, Hugh Ross, uh, many of the visiting scholars that come through RTB, and we always interview them here on our program. I've, I've, my admiration and appreciation for science has has grown, and I think largely because I realize that that scientists think and work in ways that are very different than the way that I've been trained to think, and so it's it's kind of challenged me in in that regard. Now, here's a little critique for. Lawrence Krauss. Uh, Krauss has also said, by the way, that the ultimate arbiter of truth is experiment. The ultimate arbiter of truth is experiment. Well, what experiment told him that? Hmm. Did, did he do an experiment and the data said, oh, uh, experiment is the only path to truth? No, that's a belief that he started with, right? It's almost, it's almost religious. I mean, you might hear somebody like me say the ultimate arbor of truth is the scriptures, right? Sola Scriptura. Uh, there's no experiment in the world. In fact, an experiment could never tell him that truth only comes through experiments. So, so again, he's kind of engaged in philosophy, but, but I like what uh, a philosopher will, uh, a scientist I'll quote later, it's low-grade philosophy, if you will. Mm. If you're going to beat up on philosophy, don't use bad philosophy to do it. Mm. Now, here's a, another very prominent scientist, uh, outspoken atheist. Uh, you know, some clearly some scientists are clearly atheistic, yet there remains lots of scientists who are who are theistic, who are Christian, Jewish, or or Muslim. Here's Steven Weinberg. He says, many of the subjects of physics, space and time, causality, ultimate particles have been the concern of philosophers since earliest times. But in my view, when physicists make discoveries in these areas, they do not so much confirm or refute the speculation of philosophers as show that philosophers were out of their jurisdiction in speculating about this phenomenon. Well, uh, Again, it's it's true that philosophers don't have a laboratory, if you will. Their laboratory is more uh, the, the logic classroom. Their laboratory is more uh, living life uh, in itself. But, you know, these, these particular ideas, I think, uh, 
have actually been critiqued. In, in this sense, uh, and this is something we talk a lot about on straight thinking, but you know, the idea of physics and mathematics, I mean, we haven't yet talked a little bit about uh, another topic. Um, in science's discovery of truths about the natural realm, we have to remember the limitations of science. Uh, you know, science didn't give us mathematics. We start with mathematical theories. Science is dependent upon mathematical theories. And, you know, there were philosophers talking about this centuries uh, ago. In fact, here's an interesting quote from uh, John Lennox, who is himself a mathematician uh, at Oxford University. Listen to what uh, Lennox says. He says, quote, one of the most powerful evidences to my mind that there is an eternal mind behind the universe is, first of all, that we can do science, that we can do it in the language of mathematics, that we have language we can use. We can use abstract concepts that are not material to describe things that are physical. All of that points in one direction and one direction only, and that's this, in the beginning was the word, not the particles. So when Weinberg says, for example, that uh, you know philosophers haven't stayed up in all of these things, I think what's being smuggled into all of that is uh, the, 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 the lack of appreciation that science is dependent upon various fields. And so things that science can't explain would include mathematics and logic. It would include metaphysical truths, it would include ethical truths, aesthetic considerations, and even the scientific enterprise itself is, is again dependent here. So what I'm saying is these are all very eminent scientists. They have really excellent credentials and I don't object in any way to them setting forth their ideas, but I think they're engaging in low level philosophy to kind of critique philosophy, if you will. Mm -hmm. Now, one more uh, quotation. This is from Neil deGrasse Tyson. I like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, one of the things I like about him is he has a, a skill to talk about science in a way that laymen like me uh, can follow. And he's mm -hmm. very articulate, uh, very engaging. And, and by the way, I, I appreciate a lot of those people who have advanced training, but are able to talk in a, such a way that I don't feel left out, where I, I, I think, wow, maybe I can understand quantum mechanics, you know? Uh, I think people like Neil deGrasse Tyson do it. Uh, there's a, another gentleman named Green uh, who has written in-, in Brian Green. Brian Green, uh, and, and even the, uh, oh, the uh, Asian scientist who talks about cosmology. Dave, do you remember who I'm thinking of here? Uh, is it Mich Michio Kaku or something like Kaku. that? Professor yeah. Kaku. I mean, here's this brilliant guy, and he comes on and talks about science and math and technology, and I feel like, wow, I, maybe I should have studied harder in college, you know? <laughs> I appreciate those kinds of people. Now, now, Tyson, however, gets into trouble when he starts talking philosophically. Here's a quote. He says, my concern here is that philosophers believe they're actually asking deep questions about nature 
And to the scientists, it's what are you doing? Why are you concerning yourself with the meaning of meaning? Hmm. Well, he's kind of, again, uh, disparaged science. Why, why ask philosophy? Uh, I'm sorry, philosophy. Why, why ask these kind of deep questions? Now, having said all of that, now I want to quote from a scientist uh, who has impeccable credentials and, and I think actually appreciated philosophy. It's none other than Albert Einstein. Here's the quote. Einstein, of course, died in 1955. He says, a knowledge of the historic and philosophical background gives the kind of independence from prejudices of uh, of his generation from which most scientists are suffering. This independence created by philosophical insight is in my opinion, the mark of distinction between a mere artisan or, or specialist and a real seeker of truth. What I like about that is Einstein had philosophical assumptions. He had a particular worldview. But, but even though he is, was an extraordinary scientist and, and actually became a celebrity, I mean, you know, we have celebrities in modern culture who are famous for being famous. Einstein was famous because he actually produced something remarkable. But notice what he says. Hey, I think studying history, philosophy helps us. It gives us a framework to appreciate science. And here's another quotation from a modern day scientist that I appreciate. His name is John Ellis. He's a physicist, mathematician, cosmologist. Well, he did an interview with John Horgan, who is, uh, I would define John Horgan's work is, he's kind of a commentator on science and he talks about uh, modern science. And I, I like his writing. But here, John Horgan says, Krauss, Stephen Hawking, and Neil deGrasse Tyson have been bashing philosophy as a waste of time. Do you agree? Here's what Ellis said. Quote, if they really believe this, they should stop indulging in low-grade philosophy in their own writings. You cannot do physics or cosmology without an assumed philosophical basis. You can choose not to think about that basis, it will still be there as an unexamined foundation of what you do. The fact that you are unwilling to examine the philosophical foundations of what you do does not mean those foundations are not there. It just means they're unexamined. Well, uh, I should identify that Ellis is a Christian, but he is a leading scientist and I have found him engaging, particularly in this aspect, Dave, He's a real critic of the multiverse. Mm. And he says, look, uh, science should not move away from the idea that that observation and now, you know, being able to observe and test is a critical testability. Testability is a critical part of science. So that kind of gives us a, a little context in terms of, you know, the, the time in which we're living. Um, I'll bet these particular scientists um, that, we, that we've been listing here, I'll bet many of them don't realize how much they have been influenced by philosophy. That is, they've been influenced by a philosophy that tells them that philosophy is overrated. So there's kind of an, a self-defeating kind of component in all of this. But let me stop for a moment. See if you, Dave or Joe, 
want to comment about this before I move on. I just uh, comment when I brought these kinds of things to the attention of some atheists that I know, they always want to fall back on the idea that no, we don't have these presuppositions that the you know, philosopher claims that we have. We just uh, go in there and, and do it and it works. And uh, the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating as it were, that uh, science works. So therefore science is, is a correct way in which to understand and gain truth and an understanding of the world that we live in and that we don't have these presuppositions. This is kind of the feedback that I get. Yeah. Now I want, I want to always be charitable here. And I, I, you know, I, again, I, I appreciate people like Einstein and Ellis who, who come along and say, no, um, it really is important to appreciate the historical and philosophical framework that has allowed us to do uh, science. But I, I want to say this, Dave, I, I think that Mortar Adler had a quote, and I don't think this quote is being uh, critical in a, in a negative sense. I don't think Adler means an ad hominem. Adler says in his book, um, scientists typically are highly specialized, but not broadly educated. Now, what I think he means by that is simply this, that the education of a scientist involves such specialization uh, that oftentimes the historical and philosophical issues are kind of left unaddressed. Um, I, I mean, I think that reaction that science works, but, but think about it for a moment. I mean, there, there really are these assumptions. Uh, you know, the assumption that there's a real world out there. Not every worldview assumes that. The Hindus don't. Um, the idea that we can trust our cognitive faculties and sensory organs. Yeah, you can keep trying and it seems to be reliable, but what worldview? And, and, then, and then issues like math and, and logic. Um, this kind of leads to a quotation here. Um, yeah, let's see here. I'm looking for my quote. Uh, yeah, here it is. This is from... Uh, Sir Peter Medawar, his dates are 1915 to 1987. He, he's a Nobel Prize recipient. And notice what he says here about the operating limits of science, Dave. He says that there is indeed a limit upon science is made very likely by the existence of questions that science cannot answer and that no conceivable advance of science would in, empower it to answer. These are the questions that children ask, the ultimate questions of Karl Popper. I have in mind such questions as how did everything begin? What are we all here for? What is the point of living? It is not to science therefore, but to metaphysics, imaginative literature or religion that we must turn for answers to questions having to do with the first and last things. Dave, I, I think that Einstein is on target. Mm -hmm. that, that the enterprise of science is a remarkable mechanism, but it has historical and philosophical roots. And, um, you know, to dispute that there are these assumptions, I think, again, is kind of low-level epistemology in mm -hmm. that context. It seems to me that the, 
the real question is not whether or not it works. Obviously, it does work. It does work. The question really is, why does it work? Right. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's exactly right. Why does it work? Um, science cannot operate neutrally apart from worldview considerations. And the powerful point is that the founding worldview for the emergence of science in the 17th century was Christian theism. And again, you have, uh, you have critics who would say that other worldviews kind of inhibited science, whereas the Judeo-Christian, the biblical worldview, encouraged it. Hmm. How about you, Joe? Question? No, uh, here's the, a question, and if it gets us too far afield, you can uh, say I'll answer that later. But uh, it seems to me, and I'd be interested in, in your social media engagements, it seems to me that the Christian who's hearing this can say, you know what, I've had these, these um, atheists and skeptics say these things. I wonder if I might come back with them and say, you are borrowing uh, uh, from the Christian worldview, and that comes from Romans chapter 1. So you're telling me that uh, the Bible is true with, without saying it. You're kind of affirming it because God has created this world and made these things discoverable for us. So you're borrowing the Christ, from the Christian worldview to critique it and establish whatever it is you're trying to establish. And I, and I think that, that that's right. That it's kind of what we call borrowed Christian capital. And, mm -hmm. and what we mean in that context, Joe, is you know, the scientific revolution, it's built upon the Middle Ages, these great European universities, uh, Oxford, Cambridge, University of Paris, etc. Um, it, it appears that the scientific revolution is, again, deeply rooted in ideas that come forth from that book called the Bible. And uh, so uh, if I could kind of uh, dig down here a little bit, just as I, um, just as I'm very careful, and I try to be very respectful with my colleagues here at RTB, you know, Dave has a PhD from Caltech. It's a leading uh, science uh, mathematics school in the country. Uh, Hugh Ross has a PhD from the University of Toronto, another fine school. Fuzz Rana, uh, he speaks a foreign language when it comes to biochemistry. Uh, Jeff, uh, again, I try to be very careful when I approach them because I'm not a scientist. And, um, you know, I, I, try to, I try to learn the things that can help me. But let me turn it around a little bit. I think scientists have to be maybe a little more humble uh, before they engage in kind of, you know, condemning uh, the philosophical enterprise. Uh, I think there is borrowed capital, Joe. I, I think that Krauss uh, and Hawking and Weinberg uh, and Tyson, I, I think they fail to appreciate the philosophical and historical context that allows their enterprise to flourish. Good. Now here is, uh, you, you mentioned social media. Here is, uh, here's a little quotation I got off of Twitter last week. Um, it's written by a philosopher. Her name is Megan Fritz. Uh, she is a, a philosopher here in the United States. And uh, she put this interesting quote 
She says, I often experience other academics in other humanities casually describe philosophy as a subject where there, quote, are, are no answers, quote, unquote, to the questions as though this were an obvious aspect of the discipline. What's the charitable interpretation here? What do they think we do? I, and I thought, wow, that's, that, that's a very interesting comment. And so I, I wrote her back and I now follow her because I'm interested in you know, her philosophical uh, take on various things. But this is what I wrote back to her on Twitter. I said, interestingly, the sophists, they were kind of a philosophical movement at the time of Socrates. So we're talking 2,500 years ago. These were kind of the philosophers, lawyers, politicians of the time. Uh, interestingly, the sophists said the same thing to Socrates. Yet Plato and Aristotle offered many answers that are still worth considering today, not to mention Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, etc. I mean, you know, I find this very interesting. Plato and Aristotle are two of the exceptions to the rule. Usually, when you go back to the ancient world, you might think, well, what do they have to offer? But you know, there are people in the world today that consider Platonism or Aristotelianism as maybe two of the best interpretations uh, of reality in the world. Uh, and a lot of ideas, that, again, that kind of merged for the development of science can be traced back to, in, in this case, particularly Aristotle. I then said this uh, to Professor Fritz, I said, in how many other academic disciplines would the ideas of people living 2,500 years ago remain living options? But shouldn't academics in the humanities know this? What surprised me uh, about this quotation is that people in the humanities said philosophy bakes no bread. Philosophy doesn't, doesn't do anything. And I close my comments by saying this, Ironically, it shows the power of philosophy. Skeptical postmodern ideas have influenced the humanities and social sciences. Now, now, here's the irony. The irony is, I think, among these skeptical scientists and now these skeptical people in the humanities and social sciences, I think the irony is they say philosophy has no answers. But the idea that philosophy has no answers is a particular take on philosophy. Mm -hmm. and, and shouldn't people in the humanities know that? I mean, I can critique the scientists for not doing their homework in philosophy. You know, they're busy people. They've got their whole field to study. But people in the social sciences and the humanities, I think, should know this. Mm. I, I think what it tells us is how powerful this kind of postmodern skepticism has become. Skeptical about what you can know about knowledge, skeptical about what you can know about morality. And, and so it is again, a, a very uh, powerful influence in the world. But if you're, going to, if you're going to condemn philosophy or you're going to dismiss philosophy, I go back to John Ellis. Don't use low-grade philosophy to do it. Be more sophisticated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I uh, just a comment. You know, you 
acknowledged a little earlier that philosophy is the love of wisdom. And you would think that, you know, people in all these fields would love wisdom, not just having knowledge about things, but have an understanding of how these things fit together, having wisdom, how to apply it, how to practice it in our lives. I love a quote that, give, that Paul gives in the book of Colossians. It says, it's in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Mm-hmm. If you reject Christ, you're basically out of hand rejecting wisdom and knowledge, mm-hmm. true wisdom and knowledge. And what you're replacing it with is kind of a worldly wisdom that just doesn't have what it takes. It's the, it's the kind of wisdom that when God himself comes in the person of Jesus Christ and, and dwells among us, that you kill him. Yeah, and I, you know, it's almost breathtaking to say that, okay, people like Jesus Christ, who is the most consequential life that has ever lived. I mean, Western civilization dates all events either before he came or after he came. But it, it's even further than that, sometimes the dismissal that, well, we, we can't, we shouldn't really take what Socrates said or what Confucius said or what, said, what Gautama said. Kind of breathtaking in kind of dismissing this kind of thing. Now, of course, what's interesting, Dave, is Paul says, you know, see to it that you're not taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy. And I I think it's fair to say there that that word philosophy in Paul's context probably means something more like worldview. Make sure your worldview thinking is not taken captive uh, by, by things that are rooted in kind of a humanistic philosophy rather than on Christ. Right. All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, how do we answer some of these uh, particular ideas. And and again, Joe, I want to take this into the next time we meet. Uh, there's a number of points that I want to make, and it'll fill up both this show and the next one. But mm-hmm. let me now shift to a, another person who uh, actually had a degree in philosophy and at one point thought he would be a philosophy professor, but he later shifted to literature and wrote books that have sold in the millions. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about C.S. Lewis. This is from The Weight of Glory. He says, to be ignorant and simple now, not to be able to meet the enemies on their own ground, would be to throw down our weapons and to betray our uneducated brethren who have under God no defense but us against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. I like that, the intellectual attacks of the heathen. Then he, then he says this, this is Lewis, he says, quote, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason because bad philosophy needs to be answered. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's exactly the case. Um, I think that there are philosophers, there are people in the social sciences, in the humanities. Uh, I think we've seen it during the pandemic. Um, We've seen it in kind of social unrest on the college campuses. We've we've seen it with the ideas, uh, a preoccupation uh, with identity politics. Um, 
I think we're we're living at a time where people are raising issues and they may want to dismiss philosophy, but again, the irony is they've adopted a particular philosophy. They, they've adopted a philosophy that um, I, I think in a sense, um, you know, fails to give them the things that they really need. Now, um, at this point, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, postmodernism. And um, I want to bring you back to some things for our listeners. If you remember some of the shows we did on postmodernism, I want to bring you back to our kind of uh, description of three particular eras. Now, uh, by era there, I mean more the idea of, of worldview perspectives. Um, think of a zeitgeist. I, li I, like the, I like that word, zeitgeist, the meaning of a particular time, uh, a cultural perspective on a particular uh, time that people viewed the world. And so pre-modernism, this would of course be the ancient world. Uh, this would kind of lead up to the Enlightenment era. Christianity is a postmodern, excuse me, Christianity is a pre-modern religion. Well, what did the pre-modernists say? And, and so this would be Plato, this would be Aristotle, this would be Christian thinkers like Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas. They would say that object, the objective foundation for truth, for meaning and purpose and value are found in God. Truth, goodness, and beauty, where is it? It's in God. God is the foundation for it. Uh, God, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I, I, that that staggers me. Who was this man who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man could come to Yahweh Elohim, the great God of the Old Testament, except through him? Well, where do we get, where is the anchor, so to speak, for truth, goodness, and beauty? How, how does the world give us meaning and purpose? Well, for the Greeks, and the, these, these Stoic philosophers in Rome, um, for Jews and Christians, it's grounded in God. And God's created the world, and he creates it with namas and logos, with, with uh, laws and logic. And so you can have objective truth. You can have objective ethics because they're grounded in God. And then God has revealed himself in the book of nature, in, in the world that he's made that we can discover through the sciences, through psychology, through philosophy. But then the supernatural events of the Hebrew people in the Old Testament and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament, that book has been given to us. So it, it's easy to see why Jews and Christians would say, you know, we have the Ten Commandments. We have the Sermon on the Mount. We have the golden rule. The life is to be lived in loving God and your neighbor. Uh, these are objective truths that you can know. How do we know that? Uh, well, because God has revealed them, and we have been made in his image, so we have these 
ability to, to receive that revelation, to understand that revelation. Now, um, that's the reigning paradigm through much of history, uh, particularly in the Western world. But about the time of the Enlightenment period, so think, think in your mind, we're doing a, little, doing a little history lesson here. Think about the 1700s, right around the time of the founding of, of the United States of America. There is this Enlightenment thinking, uh, and we call this modernism. And they would say, in contrast to pre-modernism, they would say objective foundation for truth, meaning, purpose, and value. Where do we find it? Not in God, but in man, in human beings, in nature, in science. I think that people like Hawking and Krauss and Weinberg and Tyson, they're reflecting a modernism but they can't hold on to it. Um, so modernism would say, where do you get truth, goodness, and beauty? Well, these are constructs that, uh, that are kind of built into the natural world. And so they have a very optimistic view of human reason, very optimistic view of what science can, can tell people. Now, that perspective, however, kind of comes to a screeching halt right about the time uh, of the fall of the Berlin Wall. So uh, in the late 80s, uh, you have kind of the emergence of another perspective. Now, of course, all of these things have taken time and have been brewed over centuries. But postmodernism says the objective foundation for truth, meaning, and purpose and value, they don't exist or we can't know them. And, and therefore, you're, you are left with power. So the Catholic Church, in the mind of the secular postmodernists, it's, it's not about revealing the truth to the world. It's not about the Pope having uh, the ability with the College of Cardinals to interpret scripture. Uh, it's, it's not about giving the world truth about Jesus and about a, a life of, of faith, the Catholic Church has taken authority. The Catholic Church has used power. And, and so what we find in this kind of context is that in uh, postmodernism, particularly uh, secular postmodernism, you have a highly, highly skeptical view of things that we used to take for granted, highly skeptical view about knowledge, highly skeptical view about morality. Uh, and, and it's characterized, and, and again, I'm gonna draw our listeners back to um, a book I wrote a number of years ago, A World of Difference, which is a, an analysis of the Christian worldview and then a comparison of the Christian worldview with competing worldviews. I talk about the, the, the worldview of naturalism. I talk about the worldview of postmodernism. I talk about the Eastern mystical worldview. Uh, and then I even talk about the worldview of an alternative theism called Islam. Well, here's a couple characteristics that we might give for postmodernism. Um, again, I, I want to point out that you could be a Christian and be a postmodernist. You don't have to be an atheist, but I'm largely going to look at kind of a secular perspective here regarding um, 
postmodernism. The first characteristic I want to talk about is a suspicion and a rejection of meta narratives. A meta narrative is a worldview. It's kind of your big picture view of reality. I mean, you have the Christian world and life view, or you have the the atheistic naturalistic worldview, or you have an Eastern mystical worldview. These are some of the kind of big picture meta narratives. They say things about God. Um, a worldview is a cluster of beliefs about God, about human beings, about ethics, um, about reality, if you will. Well, uh, secular postmodernism is suspicious about meta narratives. And it, and it essentially rejects them. Uh, it, it is, and, and here I'm going to hint at what I think is a, is a major objection that we'll give later. Um, I think part of the problem is postmodernism is a worldview that rejects worldviews. <laughs> uh, that's, you know, that, that's kind of the underlying kind of uh, element there. A second characteristic about worldviews is I say no absolute or objective, no God's eye view of truth. No absolute or objective, no God's eye view of truth. So think back to a biblical perspective. Uh, God's the creator of the world. God is ultimate reality. God is an infinite, eternal, tripersonal spirit. God is complete goodness holiness, justice. He has all the omnis. He knows all things. He's everywhere present. He's got all of these infinite and, and uh, eternal qualities. Well, he, God, in the Judeo-Christian religion, he would have the ultimate perspective on truth. It's the God's eye view, meaning that somebody stands on the outside and says, well, here's what's really happening. If you had my perspective, you would understand the objective point of view. Well, postmodernism says there is no absolute or objective point of view. The scientists don't have it. The philosophers don't have it. Uh, and many of them, of course, say there's no God. So there's, we're kind of, we're kind of uh, swimming and drowning, if you will, in a world of subjectivism. The most postmodernists don't have it either. That's that's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. I, what what do the postmodernists say to this obvious problem that they have? They're making these claims against the very claim that there are no such things as meta narratives. There's no such thing as objective truth. Uh, yeah. Yet they're making these absolute claims. What do they say when faced with this difficulty? Do you know? It's it, it's a it's a very good question, and and it's uh, it's it's irritating because uh, and and again, I'm saving part of this for our next program. Okay. But I, but, but I want to say this now, Dave. Um, why why isn't there an awareness that the postmodern worldview or the postmodern zeitgeist, it, it seems to be self-defeating in many ways. Incoherent. It, it, it seems like it, it collapses back on itself logically, right? Well, how do I explain it? Um, 
well, I'm I'm going to try to be charitable, and I'm going to and I'm going to try to I'm going to try to put my postmodern I'm going to try to bring out my the the postmodernness deep within me right now. I'm trying to interpret them. I suspect that part of it, Dave, is that they have been inundated uh, by their worldview thinking. That is, they have kind of rooted their thinking. Uh, in people like Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, they have rooted their thinking in uh, a very skeptical approach, uh, Darwin. They think that all of these other worldviews um, are suspect, uh, have all kinds of problems, but I, I don't think that they have seen that what they have adopted doesn't provide any foundational answers. I mean, I mean, there are criticisms that postmodernism brings up that I think are good. They, for example, say, you know, maybe these scientists have overstated what you can get from science. Or they might say, you know, religious people who say that all people are made in the image of God, they don't always treat their neighbor as they should. These are fair-minded criticisms that, you know, the differing worldviews have problems. I guess my answer to your question, Dave, is I think sometimes it's very hard to step outside of your worldview and analyze it fairly and consider serious challenges. I mean, every time I go to the pharmacy, I think about Jacques Derrida and I think about the deconstruction of language. And, you know, this, I'm, I'm, I'm being kind of, being a bit maverick here. But I don't think Derrida, who, who now has passed away, leading uh, philosopher of the, of the 20th century, I think when Derrida says that, you know, that language is, is not something that, that, that carries ultimate truth or that language is equivocal and you can't trust it, I, I doubt whether Derrida picked up his prescription bottle and deconstructed you know, uh, the message from the doctor. There has to be some basis of truth. I, I suspect that it, it's, uh, it's kind of like all of us, Dave, to some degree. We've kind of adopted a worldview, and sometimes we're not aware that there are challenges that are, that are to, right. to bear. That, that would be my answer. When I go to the pharmacist, uh, I don't think quite so deeply, but it is a philosophy. My philosophy is, how long am I going to wait in this line to get my prescription? <laughs> well, that's a, I, I would call that pragmat American pragmatism. Okay. And, uh, and that mm. has some value. I, I remember when I told my dad, dad, I, I want to be a philosopher. I want to take a philosophy degree. He said, uh, what kind of salary are you going to get from this? Uh, there is a certain American pragmatism that pops mm. out there. And I, you know, I'm, when I go to the pharmacist, I'm trying to incorporate my enterprise of of being philosophical. Well, here's a third perspective on postmodernism. And Joe, this is going to relate to you and to what you do as, a, as an editor. Uh, language is arbitrary and incapable of communicating clear, objective, and ultimate meaning. Language is arbitrary and incapable of communicating clear, objective, and ultimate meaning. Now, remember, they can say that almost breathtaking statement 
because they have rejected most of what Western civilization has believed. In the pre-modern world, there was the belief that God had created the world and he'd made us in his image. And as image bearers, we have the capacity to think and to speak and to write and to read. We can, we can receive the truth that God gives. And of course, within Judaism and Christianity, we're a textual people. We're a bookish people. We're a, what is Jesus? The word, right? Mm -hmm. he's, he's the word that makes the world intelligible. Well, what if God doesn't exist? And what if we're the product of blind, mechanistic, natural evolution? There's no, there's no ultimate on the outside. And so the language that we have developed as evolved creatures, it's arbitrary. It's not capable of communicating truth. Well, how are, how are we to accept that statement then? What, what are we to make of it? Well, you, you guys are just so good at, at digging the, uh, you know, you're, you're identifying how these ideas, they, they turn back on themselves. I mean, if, if I'm to, if, if I were Jacques Derrida or Foucault, uh, and I said, well, you know, language is arbitrary, you can't trust it. Well, I have to use words to communicate that. Why couldn't you deconstruct Derrida? Why couldn't you challenge some of these particular ideas? A again, though, I think much of that is reflected in our worldview, which tells us that, look, uh, something is true and something is reasonable and logical if it avoids contradictions, if, if it is something that can carry uh, the day. Um, but, but consider, if you will, a worldview where you're suspicious of all worldviews. A worldview where there's no God's eye view of truth. There is no objective truth. Uh, there's no objective morality. Language is incapable of communicating truth. Now, number four, textual deconstruction. Um, so language is equivocal. Language is arbitrary. Um, you know, this idea that there would be a definitive book, or let's, let's go a little bit further. How about things like hermeneutics? How about exegesis? You know, the, the idea, the things I was taught at, and seminary, that, uh, if I want to understand the text, I have to look at the genre. Um, I have to look at the language. Uh, you know, it's written in Greek. What do those words mean? Uh, and and I, I have to consider what was the intention of John or Luke or Paul when he wrote it? Someone like Jacques Derrida would say, you know, the intention of the author isn't nearly as important as the various readers who pick it up and interpret it. Of course, to continue this this deconstruction of deconstructionism, if you will, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't Derrida want his readers to understand his intent? D wouldn't he, as an author, want them uh, to appreciate where he's coming from? Uh, again, I think this kind of, this undermines, but what I want to say at this point is, 
is it apparent now why we live in a culture where people just naturally, when you say to them, hey, um, you know, we are supposed to treat people as the way we want to be treated. And, uh, you know, we think there are certain lifestyle behaviors that are, are not moral. And people immediately say, well, who are you to judge? You know, how dare you say that we all ought to follow, you know, your particular worldview? Or, or if we said, you know, I believe Jesus is, is God in human flesh. Well, uh, how do you know that? How, how could anybody ever know anything like that? I think when people say things like philosophy is dead, or they say philosophy has no answers, I actually think they're testifying to how successful a particular philosophy has been. And it's, mm. called, it's called skepticism. Maybe, uh, maybe this is the reason that monkeys don't use language. Because they've already discovered that it has no meaning and no way to communicate meaning. So they gave up on it a long time ago. Well, you know, I, uh, being, a, being a philosopher myself, I, I have two dogs and a cat. And I often say when the cat comes in, you know, uh, the, the evil empire has come into the house. <laughs> and my two dogs, you know, they immediately, they, they start planning their plan of attack you know, how they're going to, how they're going to limit that cat's influence. And of course, uh, the cat is like uh, maybe one fifth the side of my dogs and has no fear at all. Um, I, I think she, she says, I might be small, but I can outthink these, these dogs. <laughs> but you know, what's interesting is when I look at the dogs, they don't have conversations, they send signals. They communicate. My daughter brought in her little dog, and we have a Anatolian Shepherd. Um, he is about eighty pounds. She is about eighty pounds, and uh, athletic, very, very affectionate. I just love, I love Gracie. She really is a gift of grace. Uh, Martin Luther was a great lover of dogs. He said they are a gift of common grace, hmm. animals. Um, but what, what again, what's what's interesting is when my daughter brought the little dog in, Gracie kind of pulled up her lip a bit. I've never seen her show any aggression, but that dog was grabbing her bone and she was sending a signal. Don't do that. Right. Don't don't do that. Well, um, what does the rejection of objective knowledge or objective truth or what happens when you make language so equivocal that you really can't communicate? Um, now, what I want to say, and I want to I want to tie this into the next program we we uh, do. I I want to say that even though um, even though postmodernism uh, is is not necessarily atheistic or not necessarily naturalistic, although there are many who affirm it. I think in many why in many ways it sh it shows the collapse of a naturalistic perspective. I, I think I think postmodernism is just is just modernism in the extreme. Hmm. 
Now, what kind of sources, uh, Joe, let me, um, let me say in preparing for this program, and I, I always like to send some notes and some things that Dave and Joe can read and we can kind of coordinate together. Uh, two of my books speak to many of these issues. Uh, a World of Difference has a chapter on postmodernism. And of course, uh, the book is filled with uh, discussion of the Christian worldview. And then in terms of kind of science, its value, its limitation, uh, Christianity cross-examine chapter one and chapter two would be good sources for that. Mm, wonderful. Thank you. Boy, I sure appreciate it. it. It feels like we're in a classroom and class is, is now being dismissed. And now we have a reading material not not because we're going to be tested on it, although maybe we'll come to that at some point, but but because we get to uh, just go over it again. So it's 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 great being a part of this podcast, and I sure hope our listeners appreciate it as well. In fact, many of them do, and they have been reading your books. Can hear a few comments that have come in. Uh, Christianity cross-examined is a classic that will be read and referenced for a long time. Dr. Nick Tavani. Yeah. Uh, Here's another comment that has come in. Uh, Hi, Ken, I want you to know how grateful I am for you and your ministry. It started back in the late 1980s through CRI. Wow. Walter Martin inspired me heavily to share my faith wherever I go and to get pretty involved in apologetics. I love the whole CRI team. Uh, there's not many like you with all your credentials that will spend as much time as you do with fellow believers on FB. This is from Lonnie Dinius, I believe. And one more uh, comment. Thanks, Ken, for all you do. Your heart always shows through your work for which I'm forever indebted, Benjamin Clifton. Well, those are some nice uh, comments that have come in. We certainly appreciate them. For people who don't know what CRI is, uh, Ken, you got your career started through the Christian Research Institute and Walter Martin as a mentor. And I continue to be surprised at how wide his shadow, so to speak, has, has uh, been cast. And I don't know if you want to comment on that, but we hear these things all the time. Yeah, I, uh, you know, in my own personal journey in faith, uh, grew up a nominal Catholic, uh, was part of a Catholic charismatic community. The, the charismatic movement had a big influence on the Catholic church particularly in the 1970s. And that was where I kind of started my journey of faith. And um, uh, I encountered Walter Martin, uh, the Bible, he was the original Bible answer man. And I think you're, you're absolutely right, Joe, wherever I go, in fact, I was in an airport one day, and this is, this is a funny story, but it's absolutely true. I was, I was waiting in line to, to, uh, you know, to be seated, to, to go in and find my seat. And this guy just has a conversation with me. So he ends up, uh, he ends up being a Christian. And he says to me, he goes, you know, my two favorite Christian apologists are Walter Martin and Hugh Ross. And I was just <laughs> like, I wanted to say, well, what about Ken Samples? No. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I was, uh, I think that uh, Walter Martin had just a deep influence. He was, uh, well, I, I call him the general patent of Christian apologetics, and mm. he, he has an enduring influence. 
Yeah, thank you for that. Thanks for sending in those uh, comments. We sure appreciate them and we'll read them on the air. Uh, some of you have been reaching Ken uh, on Facebook. Uh, his Twitter handle is at RTB underscore K samples. So you can reach Ken that way as well. Or uh, read the Reflections blog, which comes out uh, every other week. Ken has been writing there for 12 years now, reflectionsbyken.wordpress.com. You'll get an article there and you can uh, comment on what you see there as well. So thanks for those uh, comments. We sure appreciate them. All right. You can subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify, and you won't miss any episodes of Straight Thinking because they'll get delivered to you each week that way. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.